0: This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 11, with Adam Braun. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we bring you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. Today I got my good friend Adam Braun on the show, and I'm excited because I've been able to be a part of his story over the last five years of building his charity, Pencils of Promise, which you've probably heard me talk about a lot or seen on my blog. I met Adam through a mutual friend, and after a couple beers, we set off to what has become a very synchronous partnership As we talk about later in the podcast, one thing I saw in him when I met him was this rare mixture, a bleeding heart for the cause, and an amazing mind to build a business. He really appreciates branding and photography, and I saw that in him, which is a big reason why I decided to be a part of what he was doing. He soon invited me to come to Laos to shoot the branding imagery at the very beginning for the organization when he had built one school. And now fast forward five years later, we just got back from Ghana together where we celebrated the groundbreaking of the 200th school. I feel so grateful to have been able to be a part of the organization and the movement that he's created. Adam's new book called The Promise of a Pencil comes out this week and I'm excited about the release. Not only is it an amazing one about finding your purpose, but there's 30 lessons and stories on how to do that. And his story is great, especially if you find yourself in a place where you're searching for your purpose. So check it out, shoptalkradio.com slash EP11. Adam really discovered his purpose after he was on the semester at Seaboat, which was hit by a 60-foot wave, and they barely made it alive. Now he's living life with purpose, and it's the most fulfilling way to live. I always describe Adam as the guy you talk to for five minutes and you want to go change the world. He's a highly inspiring individual and is on a mission to create a new space at the intersect of the nonprofit and for-profit space. He calls "for purpose which we talk a little bit about in the podcast. So get pumped to want to get off your butt and go change the world. Here we go.
1: tell me what's real?
0: Awesome. So we got Adam Braun in his house today. How are you, Adam? I'm doing well. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Yeah, let's just get started. Kind of give us a little background, uh, where you're from, uh, what
1: you do, and, and what you've started, what you've created. Yeah, so uh, I, I was born in New York City, but I grew up uh, in the suburbs in Connecticut. Um, my parents just didn't want us getting raised inside of an urban environment, so they, they moved us out to, to Connecticut uh, when I was about four or five years old, I think. And I uh, grew up because of the, the environment that I was in, the, the town was, was Greenwich, and so um, my parents were a dentist and an orthodontist, but a lot of my, my friend's parents were um, bankers and hedge fund managers, or working in various industries, commuting in and out of the city. And I was just really interested in um, the financial sector because of that, just because um, you know, I think kind of in the late 80s, Wall Street was like this really cool thing, at least to me it was. And, um, I played a ton of sports, but the, the competitive side of me from sports and the recognition that I was a pretty good math student intersected with this idea that, uh, you could work on wall street and ideally make a ton of money. And so, um, I started working at hedge funds when I was 16 and then I started working at fund of funds when I was 19 and went to, uh, to Brown university and was playing basketball and kind of had this, this you know, what seemed like on paper, at least to me when I was a kid, the life that I would want as a college student leading into um, a career in finance and uh, went on uh, this program semester at sea when I was 21. And our ship was hit by a 60 foot rogue wave about 800 miles from land. Yeah, it was pretty wild. And it it not only was this kind of certain death experience, but it it forced me to reevaluate everything in my life. I think when you... Uh, suddenly feel like you're at the end, you immediately reflect back on everything previous to that and kind of ask these big questions. Like, why am I here more than anything else? Why, you know, what, what purpose is my life served? Yeah. Um, and, out of that, I, I became obsessed with this concept of purpose, uh, individual purpose and kind of understanding the meaning of your own existence. Um, I, I don't think it's like a random act that suddenly yeah. this incredible world that we all experience um, unfolds in front of our very eyes and that we're a part of it. I feel like it's for one reason or another um, by design. And so I really started to you know kind of look at everything from a deeper perspective. And Figure out uh, or at least try to figure out. Why am I here? And uh, I had a habit of asking one kid per country What do you want most in the world as we would travel to the the countries that we backpacked through on semester at sea? And in India where the poverty was the deepest and the most devastating that I'd ever seen in my life There was a young boy who uh, was begging on the streets And so he was the one child asked in that country. What do you want most in the world? And his answer was um, a pencil nothing more just a pencil and so when I gave him mine and he lit up, I, I kind of realized this boy had never been to school before and that that was the situation for millions of children around the world. And um, what's even worse is there's a lot of kids who are actually in school but have no access to what we would define as quality education. And so the thing that I took the most for granted and the thing that my, my family had always prioritized to kind of lift us out of poverty over several generations, um, I realized this, this kid and a lot of others didn't um, have an opportunity to Um, be a part of. And so I just, you know, felt this immediate sense of, all right, I feel like I found my purpose um, to help access children, access quality education and went to work uh, at a company uh, called Bain, um, which in my mind at the time was like the ivory tower, the best company. Um, Now it's like ranked number one, actually this, this year, Uh, number one company to work for globally. And thought I'd work there and then in finance and kind of make a bunch of money and use all my money one day to start something um, of, of kind of, I don't know, service to others. And just got the itch uh, just before my 25th birthday. Didn't want to keep waiting. I'd only been in the workforce like less than two years. Um, and so I, I started um, an organization called Pencils of Promise and that's what I do now.
0: Wow, that's awesome. So let's, let's rewind a little bit. So if, you go, if we go back to when you were on the semester at sea mm. and um, give us a little bit more insight into what that experience was like. Uh, I mean, you know, you're on your, your life jackets, you're ready, ready to get on the lifeboat. Yeah. What were, what were you feeling at that point?
1: So there's a series of emotions <laughs> that I, and probably a lot of the others on the ship went through. The, the first was, um, I would say kind of playful nervousness, because um, the, the ship was in 40 to 45 foot swells all morning. And we had been in bad weather since we had left um, from Vancouver, heading to Korea, crossing the North Pacific. And this is in winter. Um, and so you knew there was freezing cold water outside that if you got into, you'd die of hypothermia immediately or within, a, let's say, a minute or two. And so, um, you know, at first we woke up and it was like, this is way worse than any of the other days. Um, so there was certainly, I would say, playful nervousness. And then, uh, there was an announcement that came overhead that said, um, put on your life jackets and wait in your rooms. And then I would say it changed from playful nervousness to <laughs> anxiety, uh, that we all tried to, to kind of mask. Cause one, you're, you know, we were 21 and there was kind of a bravado about things. And it was like, oh, there's no chance that this ship is actually going to go down or that we're going to die today. Um, and then the guy came back over the loudspeaker right after the ship kind of shuddered. We didn't know what happened because, you know, when you're in your cabin, you're looking out the side of the ship. And so when the wave hits you head on, you actually don't see it coming straight at you because you're looking at the side. We didn't know that a wave had hit us head on, went over the top of the ship and shattered the glass on the bridge, um, which is where the navigational and the electrical equipment were. And so the water came through and shorted all of our power. And so... The guy who was in, uh, in the bridge who made the announcements, apparently, in retrospect, we learned the captain immediately, once the, the water came rushing through and we lost power, looked at him and said, um, you know, get everyone to their muster stations, which is where you evacuate the ship from. So this guy suddenly comes back on. We don't know anything. We just feel a shudder. We're waiting in our rooms and our life jackets really nervous. And he sounds like he's like sprinted a marathon. He's so out of breath. He's so panicked. And he just goes, you know, something to the effect of these words, women and children, keep on your life jackets, uh, or no, ladies and gentlemen, keep on your life jackets, uh, get to the fifth floor or higher, get to your muster stations, help the women and children, um, up the stairs, stay out of the elevators, get to your muster stations, click, and it goes off. (laughs) And at that point it was, um, terror. Like, that's the only word. I mean, it, it, we knew at that point it was like something horrific just happened, and this ship's going down. And, you know, you go to your muster stations to evacuate the ship from. And so there's only one reason to get to your muster stations <laughs> is that this guy knows something, and it's that our ship is going down. And so um, that was the worst feeling I've ever had in my life. I mean, it felt like my heart physically dropped into my stomach, like somebody had kind of knocked the wind out of me. Um, and it was just... I, I don't know, the type of feeling that leads to mass hysteria. And so that was terrifying. But about 30 seconds later, when I really started to kind of, you know, you, you're to some degree, like they say your life flashes before you. I can't say <laughs> that like imagery flashed before me, but certainly there was a feeling of my life flashing before me. And then it was coming to an end very shortly. And I, you know, kind of went through uh, the spiritual questions, I guess, that you would ask like a higher power. And through that, I just felt this total stillness about 30 seconds in, and it's hard to explain, but just an absolute confidence that um, now wasn't my time, that I wasn't meant to perish on the ship, and I felt totally at peace, and it was like this knowledge that I, I, truthfully, it was knowledge that I had more to do than to perish as a 21-year-old at sea. And so um, I actually changed into swimming gear because I thought the whole ship was going to go down and everyone was going to die, but I now knew that I wasn't dying, so that (laughs) meant I must be surviving in this water somehow. And so um, off of that, we went upstairs and there was kind of you know prayer circles and people crying and screams and you know the ship was listing 45 degrees it would tilt fully on one angle and everyone goes sliding past you and you'd hold on to a pole and or a person and you'd hear screams and you know broken glass and broken plates and all that stuff um and that lasted for about four hours five hours oh so God. that was terrifying too but um you just had to have faith that you were going to make it through <laughs>
0: That's crazy. So I mean did you what you know you asked
1: those questions?
0: I mean, mm-hmm. did you feel even if you were to die at that point where you did you feel like you were
1: satisfied with it, with your life at that point? Um, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think most people I find with um, really, really high ambitions, those ambitions have been there since they were a kid and they come through in different ways. They, they might come through in someone, wanting to be the top ballerina in your second grade ballet classes or be the captain of your basketball team when you're in middle school or you want to get straight A's for every subject that you're in. Um, and those, those ambitious characteristics, those, those personality traits, I, I really don't think that they go away. I think they just trail behind whatever accomplishment you get to. And so at that point in time, well, maybe on paper, I was at a good school, and I was playing a varsity sport, and I was pretty well prepared to go into a career, but I definitely didn't feel like I had accomplished anything compared to what I saw my life one day accomplishing. Yeah. And so there wasn't a sense of, I'm ready to go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. the, I, yeah, satisfaction, I would say, with my life at that point wasn't Oops. something that I would Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, too, it's like, is is there something
0: more that you wish you would have done?
1: Yeah, well, the the biggest thing I would say that I took out of it was that um, I kind of thought a lot about legacy, if that makes sense. I feel like legacy is maybe the only word that I could attribute it to, but how has the world changed because of my presence here? Like how, or, or footprints might be a better term, but you know, footprints are the things that are left behind after you're no longer there, but have left a physical imprint. And so I I thought a lot about, well, what have I done that's physically going to change the way that that the world exists? And certainly, again, when you feel like you're (laughs) at the end of your life, uh, the things that seem to matter most aren't the physical possessions that you acquired. It's, It's more the impact that you had on other people's life, not on your own. And so I had you know, volunteered. I had done some extracurricular stuff in high school, but I'd yet to really find a, a passionate cause that I participated in, that I felt ownership over, um, that I felt like I was making a meaningful difference. You know, I did little volunteering stuff and I was part of the diversity awareness club in high school, <laughs> right. but I couldn't really point to anything that I would say, okay, the world is significantly different or these people's lives are significantly different because of my contribution or my efforts. And that was a really big fundamental shift for me. And it, it, I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. I wouldn't live the life that I live right now if it wasn't for that wave. And my experiences on semester at sea, i always said semester at sea is the best and most important thing that I've ever done in my life. Yeah. And now that I found a fiance, I probably have to retract <laughs> those words, um, and, and say on the, the, you know, kind of Personal family side, obviously, um, being in a relationship that's going to be your your future becomes that. But in terms of a fundamental experience, yeah. semester at sea, it was just so transformative for me because it I, I feel like it opened my eyes to this i this fact, um, this idea that the service that you provide or bring to the life of others just greatly outweighs any type of satisfaction that you could derive from yeah. um, amassing things for yourself.
0: Yeah, wow, that's powerful. I mean, so like now, when you were, when you, when this light bulb went off that it wasn't your time, mm. how did that
1: shift you in that moment? And what did you do? Like, what, what went on from there? So, as I said, in the, in the moment, it made me put on swimming gear because <laughs> I knew it wasn't my time. And I knew that, that there, I mean, it was certain that this ship was going down. If you were on the ship, you felt like we're in the midst of something and the ship's going down. So, this kind of, blind delusional <laughs> sense that all right everything in the world seems one way but something inside of me is telling me that my experience is enabling it to be different or that it's going to be different um, led me to put on swimming gear and, and I feel like that as a kind of theme has probably been pretty consistent throughout my life ever since then because mm. uh, now obviously uh, you know I'm an entrepreneur and I think that a lot of entrepreneurs have that same delusional idealism about how um, their experience when compared to what the rest of the world is telling them yeah uh, you know you have all these indicators that this idea is not going to succeed because if it was going to succeed somebody would have done it previously yeah um, but you have this internal voice that's telling you oh no it's going to succeed but only if you personally go ahead and do it Uh, In the way that you believe is it's best suited to come to life. And so I think I gained this strange sense of uh, confidence out of the experience. And you you also recognize how kind of fleeting life is. You almost have a better sense of your own mortality. And, you know, within kind of Buddhist doctrines, the whole concept is you die to your desires. And in doing so, in giving up these desires, you actually become fully alive. And that really started to resonate with me. Uh, this idea that, um, like when you recognize, I guess, how these kind of desires are, are fleeting, and then you dive into kind of deeper, um, ambitions or, or deeper, uh, connections, you know, whether it's through relationships with other people or the things that you're working on, that it makes you really come alive and that, you know, you only kind of have one shot at this specific life so you might as well make the most of it and it, to some degree i think it really made me uh, fearless you I know mean, yeah i there's a lot of stuff that i was scared to do scared to try i mean i do a lot of public speaking now and i was petrified of public speaking probably the first 20 30 40 times that i <laughs> spoke and i'm not even talking about on stages i'm talking about in a room of five people and i had to present you know a little powerpoint at my old job at ban i would be you know, up all night because I was presenting in front of five people who were on my team that I knew well. Wow. And so there was still this part of me that just said, you got to get through this, you got to get through it. And I think that kind of fearlessness is derived from that, uh, that wave experience where I kind of saw the end of my own line, <laughs> and then realized that it was actually going to be moved out a lot further, but only if I kind of took control of, of my own path.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, not a lot of people get in that situation of within, a near death experience.
1: That's got, has gotta be powerful. <laughs> it is. I mean, I've, I've, I'm appreciative that it happened, but I hope it only happens once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I can totally understand that. So after that, I mean, I'm, you know, you went into this area, this space of, of finding your purpose. Was yep. this like something that it was just like a kind of epiphany that just happened or was this something that gradually you found over a certain
1: amount of time? So it, it happened over a period of time, but I feel like I was searching for it. I was seeking it out as the number one priority in my life for several years. And what I found was that I felt most comfortable, happiest, and most alive when I was backpacking. Mm. So right after the, the wave happened and we went to these different countries, we had the opportunity to backpack for four to six days um, just completely independently. And I never experienced truly independent travel, let alone being in the, and I'd never been in the developing world either. And I loved it. I mean, it was just so exciting. It was so thrilling. And the human connections that I built were so meaningful. I mean, the little interactions with the woman at the little, you know, stand by the bus stop uh, in Ecuador that I would sit and talk to for 30 minutes, it just, it made me feel good. I knew that it made her feel good. And I, I just kind of loved that human element to it. And there was just a kindness and a dignity that I experienced in the developing world that was unlike anything else that I would ever um, seen. And so I loved traveling and I became obsessed with uh, essentially taking the little money that I could earn when I was home, and you know, whether through holding three jobs at one point in time uh, simultaneously or starting little entrepreneurial ventures, And I would just take those funds and get a one-way ticket, um, to like Ecuador or Thailand or or not one way to Ecuador. The first one was to Guatemala and I backpacked from Guatemala all the way down to Argentina and Uruguay and all the way back up over four months and, uh, you know, spent a summer backpacking through partially Europe, Europe, but the European side wasn't as thrilling for me (laughs) as the developing world side. So I immediately went over to Southeast Asia, um, for three weeks and, uh. So I just spent all this time traveling and, and I really ad- adopted this mantra, um, tourists see and travelers seek. And I really took a lot of pride in the fact that I was a traveler, not a tourist. I hated this concept of like, oh, what are the tourist spots? And I was like, I don't know. I, I'm a traveler. <laughs> and uh, so I liked kind of peeling back the hood of, of cultures. And I didn't go to museums. I didn't really go to churches or mosques or synagogues. I, I asked people to invite me into their homes. And I'd go into these rural villages and spend days living with people in their communities. Um, and I, I just found that I felt closer and closer to my sense of purpose, the more time that I spent in those environments. And uh, then came back and and started working at at Bain. And strangely, it still felt like I was fulfilling my purpose because I knew that I was uniquely positioned to work in these really high levels of finance and business and consulting, um, but that I could use all of those kind of hard skills to apply them to a kind of humanitarian mission. Which was rarely which is rarely done usually people kind of focus on the business side for a lengthy period of time and then use their money to help and I felt like I could use business skills to actually help um, when I would either participate in an organization or start one one day yeah. and so um, essentially uh, by uh, September late 2008 uh, I felt like this I was getting closer and closer to this sense of purpose and then one night just Literally, it hit me with this name, Pencils of Promise, and it was like, I got to go do this because um, yeah. Bain has an externship opportunity. You can leave for six to nine months, work for somebody else, and come back. And I realized I could use that opportunity to start something entrepreneurial. Wow. A- and uh, my grandmother was turning 80, and I decided I wanted to find a way to build a school and dedicate it to her and went to the bank. And the lady said, you need to start with at least $25. So I have a bank account. My 25th birthday was coming up. And so I said, "Great, uh, good karmic sign." Put twenty five dollars in um, through my birthday party. Asked for donations in lieu of gifts, and we were kind of off and running from there.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. So go back to when you were in India and you asked this kid what he wants, because the the power of education is is huge, yeah, and something that we all take for granted in this world, like. Mm. In that moment, what did, when when you were talking to that kid, what was the epiphany that came through, like just through what you were realizing with your surroundings and then what this kid was telling you?
1: It's a great question. There was a few things that came through. The, The first one was that this thing, as you said, that we all take for granted by being in Western culture, American culture. You know, we talk a lot about how we have a broken education system, how we need to be better in all these different areas that our, our kids are falling behind, which is true. But we at least have a system in place that provides access to quality education, however you want to deem quality education, but access to education for every child in this country. And until that kid asked for a pencil begging on the streets, I didn't know I really genuinely didn't even think that it was possible. That's kind of how maybe naive I was, that kids had absolutely no access to education at all and that they spent their entire life living in a street, on a street or in a rural village and no one ever taught them how to read or write. I mean, I knew these kind of numbers that, you know, there's a literacy worldwide, but I, you almost kind of attribute that to the previous, you know, couple generations. Like, oh, okay, people that are my grandparents' age and are living in uh, rural, I don't know, Mozambique or Vietnam. Sure. Those people probably never learned to read and write, but a nine year old kid in this world, of course, they probably know how to read and write, or they've at least had exposure to it. And so the, the, this fact, I mean, right now the number is 57 million children have no access to quality education. And there's several hundred million. I think that most recent numbers about 250 million who are in school and still cannot read or write their own name by the end of fourth grade. So, um, as much as there's a like huge numbers, seeing it as one kid, one individual, it just drove it home in a really powerful way. The second thing that I realized was um, this concept that had been kind of pounded into my head as a young person, that I was too young to actually make a difference in somebody's life. You're kind of told, I feel like when you're, you know, in your teens and early twenties, when uh, you're like really young that, you know, why don't you just wait, work a while, make some money. You can't really help, or at least in that, time before social media had really risen uh, that you couldn't make a big difference as a young person. And when I gave this kid this pencil and I watched his eyes light up, I knew to some degree that his life was going to change. And it might just change for the next two weeks. But I have this feeling that, you know, something, this is going to help to some degree. And then I've actually transformed somehow a part of his life. Mm -hmm. And it might be, he might always remember this one guy who just gave him a simple pencil, or he might start writing and that could enable him to start a, you know. Better little business than begging on the streets. And truthfully, I don't know. I wasn't able to stay in touch with him, but I could just see in his eyes that somehow this was going to change his life. And so this idea that young people can't change lives completely evaporated for me. And so those two things together were really the kind of drivers for starting Pencils of Promise. Uh, I wanted to prove that you could increase access to quality education for children in challenging parts of the developing world. And I wanted to start an organization that said yes to every single person, regardless of age, status, or location, and gave them a very simple, easy, accessible channel through which they, their contributions could make a meaningful difference in the lives of others.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And it's it's amazing that you know, like the power of education, even in the in the things that we don't even think about, like hygiene and basic things, yeah. how that's a catalyst to change the world Completely. And,
1: and rid the world of so many other things. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot of very, very valid, important causes out there. The reason that I work on education is because in my opinion, it's the only one that lifts up all of the others. I mean, I, I really look at a lot of these fundamental issues around, let's say, health, hygiene, sanitation, water, discrimination, uh, domestic abuse, and I just feel like, at least maybe I'm, again, naively delusional, <laughs> but the higher levels of education that we attain globally, uh, the more those issues are going to be chipped away at, and I can't invert it and say, hey, one of those is going to complement all of the others. Yeah. And then the other thing is just statistically, the only thing that's really elevated um, earnings, like lifted people out of extreme poverty over generations that they can point to is early education for children. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Like we
0: take, we take regular education for granted, let alone like the fact, simple fact of like learning how to wash our hands.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, so now Pencils of Promise, the organization's grown a lot in the last five plus years. So it started from $25 and this ambition to build on school. And the cool thing is you and I met back then when yeah, yeah. we had one school. I mean, you came out with me to Laos to, you know, photograph at that point in time, the opening of our second school. And if you remember, <laughs> the school wasn't even done yet. No. Yeah. I mean, the, the photos are like a school halfway under construction, but they held the opening ceremony before <laughs> it was even completed because they were so excited. Um, but now, you know, the organizations broken ground on uh, over 200 schools globally across four different countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America. And then we've gone from just building schools to now training teachers, providing scholarships for our students to finish our primary schools and go on to secondary schools. And then we also deliver a health education that's around sanitation, um, water, and uh, general health. Wow, I
0: love that. Yeah, I mean that was that was a trip of a lifetime. I mean, we, you know, let's kind of get let's get to the beginning of Pencils of Promise because you know I I've always loved Pencils of Promise and it's been for me one of the biggest things, biggest charities that I can get behind Mm -hmm. because of the sustainability aspect of it, because of I mean your passion. I'm always whenever I tell my friends about. My friend Adam Braun, I always describe him as the guy that you talk to for five minutes. You want to go change the world. (laughs) And I love that. And I love that. So, you know, when you started Pencils of Promise, you know, with that, you know, you you threw your birthday party. So just kind of jump into that. How did that
1: transpire? So I had been, I'm born on Halloween. Uh, And so it makes for a really good time on a birthday. Uh, And again, when you think about purpose, it's like there may be a reason that I was born on Halloween, which enables, uh, you know, a kind of convening space for people to come out and want to celebrate. And so when I started the organization, it was late 2008. Um, it was three weeks after Lehman brothers declared bankruptcy. I mean, it was a terrible time to try and get philanthropic capital in this city. And so, um, You know, people were like, why are you starting a nonprofit now? And truthfully, I, I wasn't trying to raise big money from wealthy people. I wanted to do it with young people and in small donations. And so, um, I had been using my birthday party as a fundraiser for different organizations since my 21st birthday. So people almost like looked forward to it as this kind of Halloween party to come back together. And so I asked people to give 20 bucks. Some people gave 25 for my birthday, uh, at the door. And we had about four hundred people come out, and so we raised eight thousand um, dollars just off of that one event. And I met a bunch of people there um, who said, "Look, I'm you know I saw the Facebook invite. I read about your organization uh, literally in the Facebook invite because we had no website, we had nothing else. They just saw the name. That's <laughs> promise. I mean, I had opened up the bank account a month earlier, like we literally had nothing." Um, except with some paperwork and, uh, they said, I want to get involved. And, um, I started meeting with people doing what I called coffee chats, although I don't drink coffee and so I (laughs) drink water with people. And uh, I found there were all these young professionals who were interested in feeling ownership, like feeling connected to an organization that really resonated with them. And in particular, there was one girl, Mimi who um, was just so passionate about it and was like, I work in real estate, but I have all these relationships with potential sponsors for our our next event. I was like, what do you mean next event? I was going to have people (laughs) at my apartment for new years and maybe like put in some money from my little savings to build the first school. Like you want to be a part of this too. And she clearly had the same passion that I had. And so I realized that this could be more than just my personal project to build a school during my kind of sabbatical from work that it could actually be an organization, the one that I dreamed of starting in my forties or fifties, and I could start at the age of 25. And so Mimi helped me as well as a bunch of really good friends organize a masquerade. And that was like about $60 a ticket and 600 people came to that. And so we netted like more than $20,000 from that and then with that, and then I, I used the leftover. Uh, drinks to have people <laughs> in my apartment for New Year's and kind of gave them options, give whatever you want type uh, type of thing. And we raised more than $30,000 in the period of three months, um, which I knew was enough to build at least the first school. And so I started emailing and just kind of like, how the hell do I build the school in a rural part of the developing world? I, I would start with a partner who's done it before and try and learn from them. And I was really obsessed with building the first school in Laos because I'd fallen in love with Southeast Asia and... Um, Laos and Myanmar, the two poorest in Myanmar politically you couldn't even get into at that point in time. And I found this this organization um, that was run by a a couple out of, uh, they lived in New Jersey and they worked in New York City. And so we got together after work one night and they explained it to me, how they worked, they worked in the exact region I wanted to work in, um, and they had a model that I liked, and uh, left Bain and went for four months out to Southeast Asia and worked on the ground with their coordinator who introduced me to the education ministry started meeting other NGOs and charitable um, organizations out there and just learning. And from there um, kind of the ambition grew from not just one school to the second, to the third, and uh, eventually decided to leave Bain to work on it full time. Wow. And now that's 160 schools at this uh, point after five years. So, so yeah, we've, we have opened. So the truth is we're, Breaking ground on a new school about every ninety hours. It's insane. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, and and because they take anywhere from kind of two and a half to four months to actually complete, um, we'll essentially like open a new school almost every other day. Uh, sometimes every you know fourth day or something like that. But um, you know, assuming that this comes out in the time frame that. Uh, that I can generally see it coming out, and by that time we'll definitely have broken ground on two hundred schools. Wow, wow! And when do you, when is that supposed to be? Uh, so that'll be within a month from from that. Crazy. Yeah, I love it. It's a, it's such a privilege and an honor to be such a to be a part of such an amazing organization. And oh well. You you really are a big part of it. I mean, I don't know how many people know the full backstory, but hopefully to anyone that listens to this podcast, uh, Nick was really like one of the first five people to um, take a leap of faith on behalf of the organization and had multiple shoots that he had been offered in Brazil and turned him down to um, pick up his own flight because we didn't even have money to like, <laughs> I didn't have a salary. I was paying out of pocket for flights and Nick. Blew himself out to uh, to Laos and rode a motorbike with me and Leslie, who was our first hire, um, out there um, to photograph our, our schools in the earliest of days. And your book was coming out then, and I was blown away that your you know you built this career of incredible photography. But your um, opening gallery right and your book event uh, at that Chelsea gallery was exclusively the Pencil of promise photos, which was really incredible. So I appreciate that. I mean, this organization. Uh, would not be where it is if it wasn't for you. So <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you.
0: And I mean, I guess that. So that. I mean, that really actually segues into like my next question or next next idea is mm-hmm. that when we met and we met over a beer and we just like pff, rambled yeah. for like an hour, like super connection. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, you know, the thing that I saw in you that I really appreciate is that you have an immense sense of business. Mm-hmm. But also a bleeding heart for the cause, which is, I which for me, I see is like the, the two elements, the big elements of being able to grow and develop a charity. Yeah. Um, what, you know, how has that helped you in
1: building Pencils of Promise from your side? Yeah, I mean, I had exposure to both sides independently. So I, I spent all this time in the developing world witnessing really passionate people work on causes that they had devoted their lives to. But I witnessed... Those individuals, um, when they lacked for profit business acumen, which truthfully most of them did if they were living in the field, um, their organizations couldn't scale, they weren't run efficiently, and the type of impact that they wanted to have was incredibly limited because of their inability to grow a kind of a business sense around the organization. And then I saw the other side, which was really savvy business people try to come in and help out on issues that they cared about and were passionate about. But if they hadn't spent time actually in the field, living with these communities, they came at it from a top down approach. And so they spent a lot of money working with high level governments, which unfortunately, oftentimes, uh, there was corruption involved or kickbacks or Um, you know there's just complications it's really challenging to work in the developing world and if you don't kind of have this bottom-up community-based approach it's really tough for the money that you're raising to actually get to the people that you're seeking to serve and so again when it comes to purpose I was like what are the chances that you know my experience has been both exposure to the highest levels of, of the you know business industry and at the same time I've also lived in all these rural villages and I was like why don't you know I think in a lot of ways organizations Become a, a reflection of the not just the ambitions, but actually the kind of personality and the experiences of founders or leadership teams. And so, you know, that I was kind of like half um, businessman, half backpacker. And so the organization became very directly, I would say, a reflection of that. And it was really important to me that we, we have the sensibilities to understand how to work directly with people on the ground and empower locals and, you know, give them the opportunity to self educate but hold the organization accountable to the um, not only transparency, but the commitment to results that I had learned from the for-profit space. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I mean, I I call that a a for-purpose organization. You know, the the term nonprofit does a real disservice to the industry because I don't wake up ever and say, oh, I really want to not profit today. And I don't think the organization has any ambitions of not being profitable. You know, that's a byproduct of our tax status. We're a 501c3 organization, and so we are a not-for-profit by tax status, but that's not our business model. Our business model is to increase the social um, return that we're able to, to bring to people that give us contributions and the people that we um, seek to serve in the field. And so I like the term for-purpose a lot more than, and, than nonprofit, and I feel like it's reflective of an organization that has the um, – head of a great business and the heart of a great nonprofit. Yeah,
0: no, totally. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So like, what would you give, you know, if somebody wanted to, you know, I get a lot of people ask how like starting a nonprofit, like what advice would you give to people that want to start a
1: nonprofit or for purpose for that matter? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, one, I just... Wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so this book uh, called um, The Promise of a Pencil, How an Ordinary Person Can Create Extraordinary Change, is really, um, first and foremost, it's the the personal narrative of going from, you know, really, uh, I, I would say, ambitious, driven person um, interested in finance to starting uh, now a high-impact organization that's grown and scaled pretty significantly But um, I wanted to write something that wasn't just like an inspiring story. Uh, I wanted to write something that was um, a blueprint for anybody else to find their own path to passion, purpose, and success. Mm -hmm. And so um, the book is written in 30 short stories and it's 30 vignettes, each of which are titled with a mantra. And those mantras are um, learning lessons. And so to the point of your question, one, I would say if you read this book, it gives you the 30 exact steps (laughs) that you would follow. But I guess I'll quickly reference three of them. So the first one um, is the the title of the I believe it's the second chapter, but it's it's just called "Get Out of Your Comfort Zone." Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the longer time that you spend being content, being satisfied, being comfortable, the less uh, exposure you have to kind of self discovery. It's like your self discovery is it, it exists on the you know frontier, like past the frontier, past the borders of where you're comfortable. So the first thing, I mean, for me, that was going on Semester at Sea. I I left this kind of comfortable life that I had in college behind. I didn't know a single person, didn't tell any of my friends that I was going. I wanted to be completely alone on Semester at Sea. So that was the first thing. The second um, is uh, that you have to, when you're starting the organization, um, you have to speak the language of the person you want to become. Not speak in current present tense. Um, You know, Mike, somebody said, what do you do? I got really bored of saying I'm a 23-year-old management consultant and I work at Bain & Company and my clients are X, Y, and Z. What was really exciting for me was to say, I work at Bain, but one day I'm going to start a not-for-profit organization that builds schools and increases access to quality education. And when you speak the language of the person that you want to become, the the energy that you create around yourself and that the world brings to you pulls you forward into that aspirational self that that you want to one day live into. And then the um, third one uh, is that there's um, another mantra from the book but uh, make your life a story worth telling mm. yeah I, I, f- I think a lot of people they get content with the current situation or when they're faced with the decision they wonder alright should I do this or not it's kind of scary I'm not quite sure what if I fail and ultimately, um, when you've had that certain death experience, you know that at one point in time, you're going to reflect back and not all of the things that you went through really stand out. There's only like kind of highlighted experiences. And ultimately, I think we're all storytellers. And one day, your kids and grandkids and great grandkids will tell your story. And so you should make your life a story worth telling. Yeah.
0: Wow. that's uh, I'm excited for the book. Can't wait for people to check it out. And I can't wait to check it out myself. But you know, going to that, you know, finding your sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know, what advice would you give to other people to, when they're you know finding their sense of purpose? I mean, not a, obviously not everybody gets to go on a boat and right, right. <laughs> have a near near death experience, yeah. but for somebody searching, because a lot of people are searching
1: for yeah. A purpose. Yeah. What would be your advice? Advice for that? Yeah, I mean the 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 biggest thing to discover a purpose again is to. Keep, I don't want to like drive it home too much, but you really have to get outside your comfort zone. I mean, the truth is if I had stayed on the basketball team at Brown and I continued with my studies and I didn't change something pretty drastically, I I wouldn't have discovered what I now feel like is, is my purpose. The only reason that it happened was because I decided unequivocally to get outside of my comfort zone. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I, you have to go on a study abroad program if you're in college. I mean, I was, um, I, posted the first review of the book last night, um, on, on digital and social media. Unfortunately, like, it's really scary when you write a book and like, yeah, your friends and your family say, yeah, it's great, but you know that they're going to say that. I mean, yeah. I was already thinking about the fact that I have no doubt that it will be critically acclaimed as book of the year by both of my grandmothers, <laughs> for sure. But when it goes outside of that sphere, uh, who knows what people are going to think, especially literary critics. And fortunately it got this really, um, great review from Publisher Weekly, which is the trade publication for um, the literary industry. And so I was pretty relieved by it, and I, I kind of shared it. And this friend of mine from high school, who, truthfully, I've kind of lost touch with. I've probably spoken in three, four years. But um, she sent me this message at 1 a.m. last night on Facebook and was like, hey, just wanted you to know uh, I've decided that I'm moving to South America. I just need a change. And I'm moving to South America in two months, and I'm going to get your book, and I'm going to read it while I'm down there. And one, that was really moving because it was kind of cool to get supported by her. But I looked at that and I was like, that makes me so happy because she's taking the steps to get outside of her comfort zone. And in the process, she will discover a sense of purpose. And that could, you know, for some people, it just means changing your job or changing the city that you're living in or saying, you know, something, the relationship that I'm in really isn't making me come alive. And so I'm going to break up with this person or I haven't spoken to my mom in 10 years, I'm just going to reach out and say, mom, I want to chat. But like whatever your comfort zone is, whatever that thing that you're afraid of experimenting uh, and trying, you have to run towards it. And in the process of, you know, getting outside of kind of like what you are, you know, on paper, like, oh, I do this or I live here or, you know, this is what I'm known for. When you strip away all of those things, you actually discover who you are. And that's when purpose arises. Love that. So just a couple more questions, and
0: we'll we'll wrap it up here. But one thing I want to ask you is, coming from a you know a for purpose organization founder, Mm. how has the power of media imagery and media um,
1: served? I mean, the organization, and, and what's your perspective on that? It's been huge. One of the things that I was really, really adamant about early on is that um, for the organization to grow on scale, we had to build an incredible world-class brand around it. Uh, at the end of the day, in the, the kind of modern business environment, you know, your, your website um, in particular, now it kind of serves as your storefront and your advertising yeah. billboard and your home office all at once. And so I refused to put out um, any website that wasn't world class, and I also didn't want any imagery associated with it because you know if if you look at all of the you know kind of biggest platforms, the reason that Facebook blew up is because it was the place that housed your images. The reason that they bought Instagram was because Instagram became the de facto place for you to house your imagery. And yeah. I think as people, whether it's like scratching uh, stuff on walls as cavemen or filtering photos now and posting it across digital channels. Uh, we're drawn into storytelling via imagery, and we want to know what people are experiencing. And so, um, you know, that was why when we got linked up by a buddy, I was like so excited. And when I saw your photography in particular, it really resonated. It felt like this is the, the Pencils of Promise brand captured um, aesthetically. And so it's been essential. And And for anybody that's out there kind of thinking about how can you continue to grow or scale or even launch a business, I would really advocate for getting top-notch photography because it makes a world of difference. Yeah. Well,
0: that's awesome. Awesome to hear. Uh, so what's the grand vision for Adam Braun? Where do you see yourself (laughs)
1: going heading? (laughs) Um, you know, again, this, this idea of purpose, uh, drives pretty much everything that I do. And so, um, the, the biggest thing that I hope is that I just continue to fulfill that that feeling. Um, and, you know, my current mantra um, is actually not in the book, uh, but the one that, that kind of feels right to me in the current moment, and they kind of change every four to six months, let's say, is this phrase, um, all final decisions are made in a state of mind that will not last. Mm. And I think it's just so true. Every time you say final decision, you just have to recognize the state of mind that you made that decision in is ephemeral, it's transient. It will change. You will not feel the same way that you felt in that moment six yeah. months or 10 years from now. And so because of that, I'm, I'm trying to scale back my absolute <laughs> statements, um, but recognize that like the present moment is special and that it's unique and that it will not be the same in the future. And so, you know, the kind of grand vision is first and foremost to um, live a life that helps as many people in um, as kind of deep and meaningful ways as possible. Yeah. Uh, and then off of that, I ideally start to, uh, educate and mentor and help others to find their own sense of purpose. Cause I know how challenging it, it is. Yeah. And finding mine was like this really lucky, you know, <laughs> although you kind of hopefully make your own luck, but it's something that I, I feel like I almost, um, am so grateful and fortunate to have discovered. And now I just want to help other people find theirs as well. Wow. I love that. So what does live inspiration mean to you? Mm. Live inspiration to me is, is, uh, living your truth for Mm -hmm. sure. I mean, I think one of the most inspiring things for people is seeing authenticity out of others. And so, um, live inspiration in my mind is, is not like trying to do things that are outside of who and what you actually are. But, uh, I think living with, with authenticity and living your, you know, living your truths, uh, becomes living inspiration. Awesome.
0: Love that. Well, I mean, there's so much more, but you've, you've inspired me today and I'm, I'm super excited. So
1: where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, two places. Uh, my personal website is www.adambron.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the organization's website is pencilsofpromise.org. And then if you want to pick up the book, it's on Amazon, uh, called the promise of a pencil.
0: Awesome. And if somebody wants to get involved with Pencils of Promise, how would they go about doing that?
1: You just go straight to the website and everything is incredibly easy and accessible there. Um, And then kind of the three things that we've really found resonate with people is one, you can uh, donate your birthday just like I did. Go on, create a campaign um, and ask for donations and little gifts. The second thing is taking on any type of personal challenge. You know, we've had people run half marathons, marathons, uh, triathlons, um, everything from like, you know, just crazy personal, um, challenges. Uh, and then the third one is you can, uh, decide to honor a loved one or a family member and set a goal around it. And so, uh, our numbers are, are really accessible. I mean, it's $25 to educate a child. Uh, it's about $500 to train a teacher, $10,000 builds an actual classroom and $25,000 builds a whole school. Love that. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Nick. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much for checking out today's episode of Shop Talk Radio and joining me as we dive underneath the hood of the creative lifestyle. Again, I am your host, Nick Onkin, and if you enjoyed today's episode, then go over to iTunes and leave us a good review so that we can spread the word and inspire even more people in the world to live inspiration and share their inner creativity. Also, we'd love to see where you're listening to the podcast. So snap a photo on Instagram, hashtag live inspiration or tag me at Nick Onkin so that you can inspire other people to listen wherever they are at. But beyond this, check out NickOnkinShopTalk.com to read articles on creating the creative lifestyle anywhere from emotional intelligence to any other aspect of creative entrepreneurship. I'll be also posting up editorial content in the form of visual essays that I get to create with my photographic eye and my craft and my career, uh, but most of all, you get to join the underground creative community that we're creating. So thanks again for joining us. Now go share your creativity with the world.)